everybody should definitely come to Baltimore. We have a way of speaking to each other through food. It's really renewed for me, my love of what I do. It's gonna take something far stronger than a pandemic to defeat us. All of these businesses are taking precautions to make sure that everyone is safe. We're ready. See what we've got going on. Plan your visit at Baltimore.org. Welcome to Accelerate Your Business Growth with your host, Diane Helbig. Diane is a leading small business development and leadership coach, author, and speaker who is passionate about sharing valuable ideas, tips, and techniques with business professionals worldwide. Diane brings you the world's experts and gurus in all things business, whether it's sales, structure, social media, planning, or plateauing, guests bring their expertise and energy to each episode. When growing your business is your focus, Accelerate Your Business Growth is the show to listen to. Got a topic or guest suggestion? Let Diane know. The goal is to make sure you have the information you need to move your business forward. Thanks for joining us. Settle in and enjoy. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for joining me. Today's podcast is sponsored by Audible.com and Gusto. Audible.com is a leading provider of spoken audio entertainment and information. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash businessgrowth. Gusto offers modern, easy payroll plus benefits to small businesses across the country. They were even named Best Online Payroll by PC Mag. As a listener, you'll get three months free when you run your first payroll. Sign up and give it a try at gusto.com slash accelerate. Accelerate Your Business Growth Podcast continues to gain recognition as a great resource for small business owners, sales professionals, uh, business leaders of all sorts. Uh, and this is because of the guests. Uh, these are folks who uh, give of their time and their expertise to join me uh, to have a conversation where they share that expertise with all of you. That way you can get the answers you need, uh, the ideas, tips, um, education, connection to these folks, uh, so you can do better things in your business. Today my guest is Jennifer Peak. Jennifer provides clients with key strategic insights while helping them develop plans to execute on their visions profitably. At Peak Advisory Group, she consults with executives and business owners to identify business gaps and opportunities to increase value and prepare them for the next stage of business evolution, from growth to varied exit strategies. Thanks so much for joining me today, Jennifer. How are you today? I am great. How are you? I am doing very well. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, it is wonderful to have you here. Um, I love this topic of uh, business value, and um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to learning uh, from this conversation. So, <laughs> you know if I am, uh, so are the listeners. 
Um, I want to start by talking about taxes Yep. and uh, why minimizing taxes would be a bad thing for business value. So there are certainly a lot of different tax strategies um, that affect the value of your business differently. But generally what we've seen is that um, minimizing taxes often equates to maximizing expenses. And there's a lot of ways to maximize expenses and not have it affect your value. And then there are a number of ways that it really does affect your value. So to, to back up for a moment and, and just talk about how value is generally calculated, the vast majority of businesses are going to have the value of their company calculated based on their earnings, um, whether that's their net income or their earnings before interest, taxes, and depreciation. It varies depending upon the industry, but generally speaking, it's going to be based off of your income statement. So the lower the number is at the bottom of your income statement, the lower your value is going to be. Now, it's also gonna be the lower your taxes are going to be, and in the, the building phase of your business, you often want to minimize the taxes so you can use that cash flow for other purposes. But when you get to a place where you want to consider your exit options and look at the value of your business, then's the time to consider what the best components and the mix of those strategies are for you. Okay, so this is this sounds like this is um, something you start thinking about when you're starting to think about how you're going to wind down or if you're going to sell or whatever decisions you're going to make about exiting so that you can maximize the value of your business instead of hurting that by paying less taxes. Something's got to give. Something's got to give. The, the other time that it's um, important to keep the same idea in mind is if you want to consider getting a loan for growth in your business. Um, if you want to potentially bring on outside investors, if you, if you want to do something like that, with, with those companies or banks or lenders or investors are going to be interested in is how do they get a return on their investment? So they're also going to want to see positive cash flow coming off of the business so they can be assured that in some way, they're either gonna get their money back, for example, through a loan payment, or that there's gonna be growth to the capital that they're putting into the company. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, so if someone does wanna maximize their value, what are three things that they can do? So three big things that, that you can do to maximize your value are to take a look at your staffing and your compensation plans related to the staffing. So as an example, there are opportunities for bonus programs that could be tied to the results of the company. So you could still really well compensate your employees, but have it 
correspond to the company being successful as well. So that's, that's a really good example. And then if the company doesn't achieve the milestones, then those bonuses perhaps are minimized or, or not paid at all. The right. other um, helpful thing about that is that you can show somebody outside of your company, whomever that audience may be, that those compensation programs are attached to that and that's a sliding scale. So it's not a fixed salary component which can um, be more difficult to work with. So that's one of, one of the big areas to look at. One of the other areas to look at are, you know, where you can to um, have your terms with your customers and your vendors be as aligned as possible. One of the things that we see quite often is that uh, your suppliers, perhaps, pass along annual price increases for what they're providing to you, whether that be goods or services. And oftentimes those go unnoticed and they may not be passed along to your customers. So your profit margins are shrinking and you may not be aware of that. So it's a good idea on a routine basis, perhaps it's annually, to both review what your vendors are charging you as well as what you're charging to your customers. And if you're not able to pass along all of those price increases to your customers, then it's time to look at other areas of your business where you may be able to do things perhaps more efficiently. Um, there are a number of instances for our clients where they haven't been able to pass along any or all of the price increases. They may have contracts with customers that require a certain amount of notice. They may be providing a commodity service or product that just doesn't have a lot of room to increase the price. And in those instances, what we do is we look at their processes and, and try to determine if there are more efficient ways to deliver the same service so that we achieve the price savings in different ways. The other thing um, and the final thing in terms of what we look at and ways to maximize your business value is how quickly can you, if you have inventory as an example, how quickly can you turn that into cash? So one of that's um, where if you have to order inventory 60 days in advance, and then you get it in and you have to pay the vendor 30 days and it takes you another 90 days to deliver the product or the service, then you're carrying the cost of that for the entire time. And there are certain carrying costs that show up in your financials related to that. So one of the things that we try to do is help our customers and our clients move to a little bit more of a just-in-time basis, um, depending upon the type of industry that they're in. And not only does that show up on the value side of the equation that we just talked about, it also really helps small businesses and even mid-sized businesses get a better handle on their cash flow, which is something that I think every business struggles with at one time or another. <laughs> it's so true. And I was just talking to someone who was, we were talking about government contracts mm. and she was talking about cash flow and, and how you have to realize 
they don't pay quickly. Right. So you're definitely going to be carrying that cost of whatever you have to pay for, if it's payroll or whatever it is, you know, until you get paid. So you exactly. Ready for it. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. Okay. Um, what do banks look for when they're loaning money for growth or for acquisition? Okay. Um, first and foremost, they want to know that you can pay them back. So the, the, the biggest equation that banks look at is something that's called debt service coverage. And generally speaking, the way that that gets measured is to look at a company's cash flow, which is often measured by a term called EBITDA, which is earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. And from that, they look at what are the annual loan payments going to be. So principal and interest, what are the annual loan payments going to be? And is there sufficient coverage? Now, the ratio that banks look for in that coverage can vary based on the bank and based on the type of loan that a company is getting. But generally, your minimum is 1.25. So you need at least 125% of your loan payment on an annual basis to be generated by the company's income statement. So after you've met all of your, you've paid your payroll, you've paid your accounts payable, you have all of those things in your income statement, what's left over for you to pay the bank? So that's the first thing that they look for. If you don't meet that criteria, that's the, the problem that is going to have to be solved right out of the gate. Either the loan amount might be reduced, there could be some options for extending the term, um, there may be some other combination of financing that you can put together or investment. So there, there are ways to solve that problem inside the loan request without having to take another two years to get your financials in order. So that's, that's the first thing that would get looked at. In addition to that, what they want to know, if you're going into a growth phase and you're staying in the same line of business that you've been in, that you've got key team members that have been in place, that's really important. They want to know that the people inside the company can execute on that growth strategy. Similarly, if you're buying a business, they want to understand what role you as the new owner are going to have? What are your qualifications for that role? Who are the key team members that were with the old company that are going to be with the new company? Because your ability to continue to run and support that business is what's going to allow them to get their money when they, after they loan you for the acquisition. So that's, that's a key piece of it is, is really the depth of the employee and the management team. The other thing that they're going to look for um, is they're going to require you to do a business plan. Then um, the, the scope of that, it varies again based on the lending institution, but they're going to ask you to at least do two years worth of projections. So you need to have a good understanding about where you think 
your business is going to go. Some of the red flags that they're going to look for are, do you have a concentration in your customers, right? Do you have five customers that make up 80% of your revenue? That's a concern for a bank because if one of those customers leaves, then your ability to continue producing the same level of profit could be minimized. Um, they look a little bit at supplier concentration. That's less of an issue uh, unless you're in a very, very specialized industry and you can, it takes a long time um, to either get goods and or if uh, there are really significant labor issues in your industry. Again, supply, the supplier side of the equation is usually a lot less important to the bank than either the customer or the employee side. Okay. That makes perfect sense to me. I appreciate that. Will you explain uh, what due diligence is and why it's important? Uh, it's sort of a two-part question, why it's important before somebody buys a company and what it'll do for them after they've closed the deal? Sure. So due diligence is a very, very broad term. Um, it can look at a number of different elements of a company. We focus mostly on financial due diligence. So there are other elements of due diligence, just to touch on them very briefly before I dive into the financial side of it, that are related to legal and human resources and, and things that are a little bit more um, compliance in nature and, and less running the numbers and the calculations. So it's, it, it's making sure that if there are contracts, as an example, if there are contracts, that those contracts are either assignable or transferable. Yeah. That would yeah. be one of the elements of legal due diligence. Um, on the financial side, the, the, the reason that you do due diligence is to make sure that the information that's being presented to you is accurate and complete. That's a very simple way to say it. But as an example, one of the things that financial due diligence typically looks at is the company's internal financial statements compared to the tax returns that have been filed. So, it, and it looks for, what that's looking for is, are, if you've been relying on internal financial statements, but the tax returns are wildly different than those, then that can point out a couple of different things. Most likely, it's that when the tax preparer is preparing the tax returns, they are completing elements of the financial picture that aren't then going back into the company's books and records. The, the other reason that that's important is that the bank, if you're acquiring a company and getting a loan, the bank is gonna rely on the tax returns. They consider those valid third-party evidence of the company's performance and will rely less on the internal financial statements. So you wanna make sure that you know what kind of financial results you're actually buying. The other elements of due diligence often have to do with validating the cash flow through a review of the bank statements. 
So in that case, what you're looking for is making sure that the money that's going into the bank account is actually coming from customers paying the company and not from the old owner having to put money in to make payroll or loans being taken out that you're not aware of. Um, it's an indication of the health of the company's ability to convert its revenue into cash and then to use that cash to pay the obligations of the company. And then correspondingly, you're looking at is the cash that's going out of the bank account related to payroll and vendor payments and not to debt payments or other things that you as a potential buyer are not aware of. So the, the bank statements can tell you a lot about how the company is operating from the standpoint of cash. The last thing most people who are acquiring a company want to do is to have to start writing checks to make payroll. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I wonder how often that happens. I think more often than people would like. <laughs> I think you're probably right about that. Oh my gosh. Okay. I'm going to take a quick sponsor break and then I have some more questions for you. Great. Uh, Accelerate Your Business Growth Podcast is happy to be sponsored by Audible.com and Gusto. Audible.com is a leading provider of spoken digital audio entertainment and information. They have over 150,000 titles to choose from, and you can listen to them on any device, including whatever you're hearing us on right now. And if you sign up at our link, which is audibletrial.com slash businessgrowth, you get one free audiobook and a one-month trial of the service. Some examples of books you can listen to on audible.com are Breathe to Succeed by Sandy Abrams and Leading Loyalty by Lena Renee. So visit audibletrial.com slash businessgrowth Explore the books that are of interest to you and receive one free audiobook when you sign up for the trial. Everyone loves payday, but loving a payroll provider? That's a little weird. Still, small businesses across the country love running payroll with Gusto. Gusto automatically files and pays your taxes. It's super easy to use, and you can add benefits and management tools to help take care of your team and keep your business safe. It's loyal, it's modern. You might fall in love yourself. Listeners get three months free when they run their first payroll. Check it out at gusto.com slash accelerate. Today we're speaking with Jennifer Peak about maximizing business value. Um, excuse me, I'm sorry, I was trying to figure out how to ask this question. Um, why would it be better to buy a company than start your own? The biggest reason is what we call the difference between organic growth and acquisition growth. So if you buy a company, whether as an add-on to a company that you already own or as just the one company that you're going to own, there's a lot of things that are already in place in that company. So you typically have employees, customers, vendor relationships, you may, there may very well be a well-known brand associated with it, even if it's a local brand. There's a lot of the infrastructure work that's already been done. And you are getting 
a, a company, a business that is already running and going and the new owner, and this is typically what we see and why people buy companies, gets to capitalize on what's already been put in place and use their talents and energies to grow it to the next level. Whether that's expanding into a new product segment, going into different geographical markets, or um, just redesigning the way the services are being delivered. So they get to use their time and talent for that. And it's faster, right? It's, it's much faster than building something from the ground up. Now, the reality of it is that you're gonna buy also some of the stuff that's not working well with that company. And if there are elements of it that need to be addressed before you can do those, implement those growth strategies, then that's something that a new owner would need to take on as well. Um, going back to one of our prior topics on due diligence, that's an, an element that, that a new owner would wanna look at as part of their due diligence is, are the things already in place for me to implement my growth strategies or am I going to new, need to do some work to get those things there and then I can, I can start running faster. Now, as a brand new business owner, you get to make all of your own rules, right? You get to set up your infrastructure. You get to do that using the latest tools and software, and you're not inheriting some of the decisions that another owner has made. Um, you also get to hire your staff, and you're not inheriting your team members that may or may not be the best suited for where you want to take the company after you acquire it. So when you're starting out and you're building your own company, you can handpick your team members much more so than you can if you were acquiring a company. The same thing can be said of your suppliers and your customers, that you have a lot more say um, at the beginning, maybe, than you do if you are inheriting all of, all of those items. And I say that maybe you have more say in those customers, it depends on, you know, I think all of us have been through the parts of our business where, like, if they can breathe and write me a check, they're a good customer. <laughs> yeah, I hate that flaw. I know, <laughs> I know. So, um, so there's, you know, there's, there's those, those trials that you run into when you're starting a company that um, are, are really challenging to overcome. And, and I know we've all seen the statistics, which who knows, statistics are statistics about how many businesses fail in the first five years. And you know, those statistics are based on somebody starting the company from the ground up. So one of the things that a, an acquisition does for you is, at least theoretically, is it immediately gets you past that, that gauntlet that you have to run in that first three to five years. Well, that makes sense. I like that. That that's that makes a lot of sense. So, are there? So you do your due diligence, so that you're hopefully sure that you are buying a company that um, is what you think it is, and is is either complementary to what you're already doing or is a great place to start. 
Um, what are some mistakes that business owners should avoid? In an acquisition or in general? Yeah, I'm sorry. Well, in general, uh, let's say in general. In general. Um, <laughs> so I think that, you know, one of the biggest things that um, every business owner struggles with, and I really don't, I think this is true for a lot of business owners that are really invested in the success of their company until you get to a really big company. Um, and that is that it's, it's very easy to get personally attached to either people or decisions that have already been made. So um, most business owners are notoriously bad at, or I say this, I think most business owners are notoriously bad at firing people, um, right? You really want to give people the chance and you want to, you, you as the company and as a business owner have invested time. Maybe you've paid a recruiting fee, right? You don't want to feel like it's wasted money and wasted effort. And, and it's just messy. Like no one likes to fire anybody. Um, so there's a lot of attachment that happens with personnel. Um, now, if you've got a really toxic person, uh, it's usually easier to make that decision than if you don't. What I have seen though, is a lot of times, those folks are also some of the highest producers, right? They're the best salespeople. Yes. Right. Right. They're the best salespeople and they're really, but they're really about to drive everybody else in the company insane. And, and, and the, the issue or the, I will say the issue, the, the dynamic that gets created there is that as the manager, the owner, whomever, you can't tell everybody else in the company what you're doing to address this person's behavior and at short of just simply firing them, right? At the point that you fire them, it's very obvious what you're doing to address their behavior. But that's a, that's a critical issue. And I think a lot of business owners really want to hope that it just fixes itself. And, <laughs> right, Cause, and it never does. Um, the, the, the challenge is, is that the business owner knows by firing that person that that top those whatever that person was producing right all of those sales those customers those things they know what that's going to cost them it's very hard to calculate the cost of them irritating and antagonizing everybody else in that company because that's invisible yeah and and so that's you know personnel issues are always are always one of the big things that i, I think are a challenge um, and so, and, and not having a feedback process, a review process, a structure around employee management, performance, behavior, those types of things, that is generally one of the biggest issues we see in smaller companies. Um, mostly because policies and processes aren't strong suits of any small business owner. And HR is going to be one of the last places that those things get put into place. Right. So, you know, um, and related to that is the, the cost component of not having a defined uh, 
position outline or what a, a pay scale internal to the company or when people are going to get raises. So oftentimes I see business owners who get reactive with that solution and they end up just paying, you know, Susie's going to leave and oh my gosh, if Susie leaves, we're up a creek. So I'm just going to give her a raise. Well, now you've given Susie a raise that you're not, honestly, we're not sure if the company can afford it. And what are we going to do about these other people when they threaten to leave? Are we just going to give them more money? So there's, there's that cost component of HR management as well. Um, and for any, any service organization, your people are the ones that are providing the service to the customer. Right. Right? So right. Yeah. they can't leave. Well, they can, um, but it, it can sometimes feel like the reverse of the golden handcuffs for business owners. The other mistake that I often see business owners make is not truly understanding the profitability of their services or their products, right? They may know it in total for their company, but they don't really know which ones are contributing the most to that profit and or conversely, which ones are costing them the most. So there's this idea of a loss leader, which is this is how we get people in the door and it's worth it if we don't make any money on that product or that service because 70% of them are gonna go on to buy this other thing that we know is really profitable. And that sounds, fantastic it's true right is it true and, and most business owners can't mathematically tell you whether that's true and the the challenge with that is then if you're going to make other decisions based off of that for instance i know that 70 percent of these people buy this product so i'm going to increase the price on that product well, when that happens, are they still going to buy it? Is it still yeah, going to be 70%? Question. What if it's only 50%? Then what happens? Right. right? And so really having an understanding of, where, of what that looks like and understanding the math behind it um, is important. And I, I have a client that had, it wasn't a contract, but it was a relationship with a buying group and decided to expand that relationship. What that relationship came with was a prescribed price list that had certain discounts attached to it. And there wasn't a full model built, I shouldn't say it that way, but what happened is that that buying group moved from 2% of their revenue to 20% of their revenue which sounds good, except that the cost at the same time that they made that decision moved from being 35% cost to being 45% cost. So now Ooh. I have, right. So now I have 18% more of my revenue. That's even more expensive than it used to be. And yeah, it was very, very telling. Um, so understanding where you're at, where you want to go, and measuring that along the way so that you can make better decisions instead of looking up one day and saying, holy goodness, 
we're not making any money and I don't know when that happens. Um, is, is, is a good idea. The other thing that it can tell you, right, is it can tell you where to expand um, and or where not to. So one of our clients has a service component of their business and a products component of their business. And the service component of their business is a little bit better than break even. The product side of their business, however, makes money hand over fist. So when we're looking at, well, should I open a new service location or should I take that money and invest in building out my product line and really promoting that, those are the things that we're looking at. That's a great example. Those are, those are unfortunately, really great mistakes um, <laughs> or no, really great Right. Unfortunately. Yeah. Since you were saying, I was thinking, yeah, 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 get it, yeah. Ugh. Yeah, the problem. Okay. Um, how does someone know when it's time to sell their business? So the problem is, is that most people realize it's time to sell their business when they're ready to sell their business tomorrow. And um, most businesses aren't easily sold tomorrow, right? So it's yeah. not like you're selling your house. You can't just put it on the market and, and hope for the best. Um, the, you know, in a perfect world, I would say that if you can figure out three years in advance that you want to sell your business, that's ideal, right? It gives you time to fix some of the things that are fine for when you are in there running your business. But if you want to sell it to somebody else that could minimize your value that aren't just financial, it could be the fact that the owner is the primary salesperson. Well, we need to replace the owner and not, you know, while the owner is still there, not hoping that we can find somebody to buy it that could be that replacement salesperson or project manager or, you know, whatever critical role that owner is, is serving. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if you've been minimizing taxes and you need to kind of fix the profitability side of the business, that's a good two-year cycle just because that's what the banks are going to look at from a financing perspective. Um, so, so there's that. Now, that's, that's nice. Here's what I tell the business owners that I work with. I don't know if you're ever going to want to sell your business. What I do know is that there's a lot of life stuff that happens that none of us can possibly anticipate. You may decide two years from now that you have a passion project that you want to go work on and or you want to start another business that's solving a completely different problem that you're not even aware of right now. So you want to have the time and the ability to do that and maybe some additional capital. I also know that people get sick, um, whether that's personally or close family member wise or, or whatever the case may be. So what we really work with our clients on is I don't know how you want to exit your business, but if the only choice that you give your choices that you give yourself are feet first, 
i.e. you die and they carry you out feet first, um, or you close it, are those the only two options that you really want to have? And if they're not, then maximize your options by doing some of these other things before you have to make that decision. Because then you'll still have the missed options. Maybe you end up selling your company to your employees. Like it doesn't have to be that you're going to go market it and find somebody that you don't even know if they exist. You could sell it to your employees. You know, there are other things that you can do, but the way that you're going to have the most flexibility and the options and even to just go, you know, 50% in your business is to give yourself all of the, that flexibility. Um, you know, it's, it's almost the equivalent of not buying too much house and then you can't buy the furniture to go into it and you can never eat out again or take a vacation. <laughs> right. So it's kind of that equivalent. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. And I really like that because I think it stops people. I know a lot of people who say, I'm not going to sell my business. Right. Like, okay, great. And that, that pretend like you are or work toward making sure that it's in the best possible position because that's what's best for you, ultimately speaking, whether you decide to sell it or not. That's right. Wow. I like that thought process. Okay. So then we have serial entrepreneurs, people who love, I don't know, you know why, but they love to start and stop and buy and sell. Um, are there things that they need to know about buying and selling businesses or things they need to watch out for? You know, the biggest thing that I see with serial entrepreneurs is it's, it's the universe of the cash flow. So, and, and what I mean by that is that if you're relying on, there's different ways to, to manage this. So I have a client right now who um, is, I'll call him a serial entrepreneur. Now he's the serial entrepreneur from the perspective of, I wanna own multiple companies and I'm going to use the cash flow of one company um, as a way to fund the acquisition of another company. So that's, that's one version of a serial entrepreneur. Now, the, the second company needs to have its own cash flow to stand on its own, to meet the financing requirements and things like that, but it doesn't have to pay his salary. So that's a, a good news thing for the new company is that they won't have to pay his salary and that's a savings on the cash flow side. The, the challenge is he's got a lot of his own capital tied up in company number one. So he doesn't have the flexibility to use that capital for company number two. And that, that creates a very interesting dynamic. Now, some serial entrepreneurs um, overlap those. So they buy company number one, they intend to sell company number one after five years, and then in year four, they buy company number two. So they, they're trying to overlap them a little bit the same issue applies. They don't have access to the capital that's tied up in company number one to be able to really buy or grow company number two. Um, the, now for serial entrepreneurs who are basically rolling capital from venture to venture to venture, the biggest thing honestly is taxes. 
because the sale of that company is going to trigger a tax bill. And depending upon how long you've invested in the company, how long you've held it or owned it, it's going to, it's just like buying and selling stocks. There's capital gains and there's ordinary income and there's different elements that, that go with that. Um, and if you've borrowed money, you're going to pay that money back when you sell company number one. So one of the biggest surprises to business owners that are selling their businesses is how little money they actually get to walk away with, um, which is, and, and if you have hired an, an intermediary, i.e. a broker or an investment banker to help you sell the company, there are going to be fees associated with that. So you've got legal fees, you've got to pay off the debt, you've got taxes. Um, there's all of these things that start adding up. And, and it honestly, it surprises a lot of business owners um, and it makes them evaluate the offers that they're getting differently. So, so a lot of business owners don't look at those implications until they get an offer. And then they're like, okay, well, here's my offer. Now, how much of this am I going to get to keep? And then they are stunned. <laughs> and it's like, well, your business is still only worth that. Like the fact that you don't get to keep any of it doesn't change how much your business is worth. So that, that is often surprising. Um, whenever, yeah, I'm one of our clients right now who is in the process of selling his company um, was a little surprised by it and he got two very different offers so one of the other things that can happen in a in a sale um, of a business is that the buyer can ask request require the seller to finance some of it so sometimes it's called a carryback um, seller financing, you'll hear it called a lot of different things. Some banks actually require it as part of the um, transaction as well. And, and, and it is simply a loan. There are also other more complicated things that we could talk about that we don't need to get into, but it, it, in this case, I'm simply talking about a loan. So that would be another element of the cash that you don't get at closing. And it, it, but it is, it's, it's, so one of the things that I really encourage business owners to do is sit down and say, not because this is how you're going to set the price for your business. Not that a lot of business owners don't do this. They do. They sit down and figure out how much money they have to have and then calculate all of the fees that are going to come off of that. And then that's how they set the price of their business but that's not how the market looks at the value of your business. So a lot of times people who have owned their companies for 25 years, that's their retirement and they, they want to convert it to cash and are um, either unpleasantly surprised by how little cash they're actually going to get out of the sale of their company um, or they set an unrealistic price point to a level at which they're never going to be able to sell it, um, which is, it, you know, which is unfortunate because now 
that business owner is back to, okay, I can run this until I die or I'm just going to close it down and, and go on my merry way. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's a, a really good point. It sounds to me like um, it makes sense to really have a good understanding of everything that is involved in the purchase or the sale of a company so that you know what to expect. Yep. Wow. Yeah. Okay, I have sort of, I uh, will say, potentially an off-topic question, but I really want to ask it, so I'm going okay. to. Excellent. Um, I, this is about women and men in the in the business ownership space, mm -hmm. and I I think it's fair to say that a lot of women feel intimidated uh, because they feel like the the you know business ownership space is male dominated. So do you have um, suggestions or, you know, feedback if there's women business owners listening for how they can feel less intimidated in this arena? That is such an interesting question because one of the, we work with, we work with a number of business women, business owners, but also a number of men. Um, and I would tell you that in general, you know, the behavior that you see that shows up in the business owners is the same behavior that I'm sure you've read the articles about, about why women um, are intimidated in the workplace, why they don't apply for jobs that they're as equally qualified for as men, because they think they've got to have 80% of the qualifications and men are, are like, whatever, I'll figure it out once I get the job. It's the same sort of mentality. And, you know, I think that the the biggest thing that I would say, well, I think there's a couple of things. Number one, you know, women are less likely to have the conversations around financing. And I think that is both a intimidation factor that they that they're concerned that they don't understand the jargon. Um, the other issue related to that is that a lot of the service providers, for lack of a better way to put it, whether we're talking about bankers or investment bankers or business brokers or, or um, folks like that, they're men. My, the industry that I work in is probably 90% male. And they fully act like they know what they're doing. And so it's very intimidating because for women, it feels like it's hard to have a conversation with them. You know, what I encourage my clients to do is, is to, it's not that complicated, is to really just take a step back and say, how would I equate this to a situation that I already know something about? For example, in our conversation, I've used a couple of different examples around buying a house or selling a house or how you think about those kinds of things. Those analogies are very much true and they help people put women in particular put these types of business situations in context um, as opposed to getting overwhelmed I definitely think though that there is a gap in terms of the resources that are available to women business owners from that perspective um, 
because I, I think that it's very easy to get kind of stuck in the mire, if you will. The, the biggest thing that I have to say is I, they really don't, men really don't know any more than women do. The conversations that I have with my clients behind closed doors are the exact same regardless of what gender is on the other side of the table. The guys are just as freaked out about it. They're just not showing it. Yeah, yeah, right. They're good at hiding it, right. They're good at hiding it. But I also think that men are more willing to ask for advice. And Oh, really? Yeah. I think a lot of women think that they're supposed to be able to figure it out. Oh. And and, And I'm not sure if they think that because they think that the guys have it figured out and don't realize that the guys are going and hiring advisors um, or if there's something else going on. But what I would say is find, there are plenty of women, um, I'm not gonna say business coaches, but there are plenty of women experts and advisors who provide specialized services like me and my team do that, are happy to walk you through it. And um, I mean, not to use a buzzword, but I will for a moment. There's a lot of mansplaining that goes on in this space. And that's, that's a little tough. So I think part of the problem is that, that men have all sorts of role models and they have had all sorts of role models forever. And women don't, don't, Mm -hmm. there just aren't as many. Yeah. So when you don't know what you don't know, you don't know what to ask and you don't know who to ask it of and you don't want to ask the men because you feel like they're going to treat you like you're a silly little girl and you That's should right. know the answer. Yeah. I mean, one of the, the biggest problems that I've had in my own business, I'll just use that as an example, is that there seem to be a lot of resources for true startups like, um, and they're, they're, the, they're those business growth incubators or the accelerators or those types of programs. So there seems to be a lot of those. Then there seem to be a lot of women business owners who are already at that, you know, seven figure, eight figure mark that are out there making things happen um, and or they're the CEOs of giant corporations. But in the middle, um, for the women business owners that are, have figured out how to make it work, right? They started their own company and they've gotten past their five-year mark. They're really in the trenches and they're starting to scale and they're coming to these critical things related to expansion or product development or team growth. Um, there is definitely, I think, a dearth of resources in that space. And, it, it makes it hard for all business owners, but certainly women business owners who don't have that network to know how to grow past that. Yep. Yep. I think you're right about that. Yeah. Well, there's an opportunity, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, I, I really appreciate this information. And will you let the listeners know how they can find you? Because I, I feel like that, that would be a great direction for them to go in. Certainly. Um, The best way to find me is through our website, which is peakadvisory.com. So 
P as in Paul, E-E-K, advisory.com. It's like peekaboo. That's the easiest way to remember it. <laughs> That's great. Thank you. Thanks so much for being here with me. And um, I want to thank the listeners. Listeners, you know, th this was great. And I um, think that for all of us, there are plenty of resources out there if we use the Google machine and, and try and find them. But also, uh, Jennifer and, and the other guests that, that I've had on this podcast are great resources for all of you. So reach out and get information that you need, get the assistance that you need. I would also like to thank our sponsors, audible.com and Gusto. To get a free trial of audible.com as well as a free audiobook, just go to audibletrial.com slash businessgrowth to sign up. For payroll processing you'll love, sign up for a demo of Gusto today at gusto.com slash accelerate. Listeners get three months free when they run their first payroll. Continue to prosper and be curious. And until we meet again on another episode of Accelerate Your Business Growth, goodbye and good day. Somewhere out there. There's a man on a park bench eating his 500th PB&J. He has no idea Papa John's has new papadillas that are way better than a boring sandwich. With Papa John's best meats, cheeses, and veggies hand-folded into a crispy flatbread crust. Someone better tell that man. Get a new papadilla in one of four flavors for just six bucks. Better ingredients, better pizza, better than a sandwich. Papa John's. Not valid with discounts, fees, and taxes. Extra prices may vary. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly, and our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast.